and welcome to the first Digital Foundry Direct for 2022. And we're going to be kicking off with a big bunch of uh, news from CES and joining me to discuss it, John Linneman. It's the future, Rich. It's 2022. We're here. We made it. <laughs> we did. We're only 18 years from Phantom 2040. Okay, good. And... Um, <laughs> Also joining us, uh, Alex Batalia. Hey there, Rich. Happy New Year to everyone in the audience. First video of this year from us, and I'm excited to talk about uh, CES here. Some cool stuff. I mean, CES, interesting one, this, because obviously it's supposed to be a physical event. It still is a physical event, but everyone kind of pulled out. And uh, so we've got a big bunch of virtual announcements, but a huge amount of really interesting stuff to discuss, ranging from electric cars to uh, changing paint colors on cars to uh, more pedestrian stuff from AMD, NVIDIA, and a surprisingly lackluster showing from Intel. Um, John, displays, tons of stuff going on there, exciting stuff. Tell us more. I feel like 2022 is the year of OLED. Uh, my favorite display technology for modern displays. Um, I was really happy to see how many products were present at CES this year featuring such displays. There's laptops, for instance, there's which we've had before, but there was a lot more of them this time. There's that Alienware monitor. There's actually a 34-inch ultra-wide 21 by 9 widescreen monitor uh, that's based on OLED technology. Uh, which, by the way, people have been talking about the fact that it's not HDMI 2.1, but given the resolution and the PC Focus display port, that, that, that supplies everything you need. So that's great. Um, one of the more interesting things, though, is Samsung revealed the QD OLED technology, which, so many, many years ago, Samsung had produced OLED screens, um, but given the the issues with the lifetime of the blue element from what I recall and how they were doing. I think they were doing a WRGB style OLED screen. Uh, they ended up getting out of that game and they, they leaned heavily into LCD technology. Uh, meanwhile, LG thankfully continued to refine and improve it and they made it into a viable consumer product. And now OLED TVs are everywhere. Um, I think a lot of the DF staff have them now, of course. <laughs> so, and we'll talk about LG in a moment, but essentially what Samsung's doing is they seem to be creating a new way of lighting the screen, or more like an alternative way. Um, they say it's a quantum dot technology, but it seems to have to do with the, the essentially the, the luminescent layer behind the QD layer which is so how they're lighting the pixels or lighting the screen is simply different from what LG is doing. And the advantage they're saying is that it can potentially offer increased brightness specifically with, um, I suppose things like highlights. So it should conceivably improve HDR, uh, presentations. So I need to look more into this, but, and, it is exciting, and right away we saw like Sony, for instance, announced a QD OLED screen. So it shows that now Samsung, like LG before it, is all really getting into the supply game, right? Because currently, any OLED TV you buy, uh, the panel would have been supplied by LG because they were the only ones doing them, <laughs> right? So most people would just go with the LG screen anyway, I feel, because they tended to be the most feature-rich, especially for games. But now with Samsung getting into the space... Uh, I think it's good because one, it means that OLEDs are continuing to forge ahead 
Uh, but two, this this sort of competition also means that now LG has to step up their game even further. And hopefully this continues to evolve and improve the technology, eliminating some of its flaws along the way. Um, that's the kind of stuff I'm really interested in seeing here. You know what I mean? Yeah. On the on the LG side, they um, seem to have got a brighter OLED display. That's right. Is that right? Yeah, they, they have Good. also increased the brightness of their 2022 display somewhat. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all turns out in terms of overall peak brightness for, like, say, a white screen versus, say, highlights. But I think in general, it's most important to get highlights up for HDR presentations more than, like, say, overall uh, super bright full white screen which is kind of a separate topic, I think, that maybe we don't have to get too deep into here, but I, I do feel like there is a limit to how bright you actually want a panel to be able to get. Um, like, I have the capture device here, the Atama Shogun 7, which can support up to 3,000 nits. It's a small screen, but you crank that thing up all the way with a pure white HDR signal, and it actually it, it hurts to look at. It's not a pleasant thing to, to view with your eyes. And I feel like there's there's got to be this point where we don't really need TVs to get that much brighter. Like being able to do bright highlights is one thing, but uh, flooding the screen with like something north of 2000 nits is just not desirable, I think. No. You know what I mean? It's not great. I've seen it with some of the LED screens. They have some really high peak brightness and it's just physically unpleasant to look at. It is. I, I don't... So, I mean, I guess if you're in like watching in a, in the sun and it can <laughs> yeah, help right. sort of offset that, but I'm really not <laughs> watching in the sun. <laughs> well, literally like in the sun. Yeah, like in the sun. Like you're away. down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. That, that's a weird topic. That's a separate thing. And uh, there's use cases for achieving higher brightness, I think. But I hope that the chase for extreme brightness doesn't just continue in this path of just, you know, because uh, I think displays are getting bright enough. But OLED, the one benefit, though, to increasingly bright OLEDs, though, is the ability to enhance modes like black frame insertion that I have talked about so many times, because obviously that does dim the overall picture. So if you're able to crank out more light each time the screen is pulsed, then conceivably that could actually offset the drop in brightness you get from black frame insertion. So that's actually one use case where I do think it would be beneficial. Uh, but I think... Of all this OLED news coming out, the one that's actually probably, it's not that exciting in terms of technology, but it's exciting from a use standpoint, is the introduction of the 42-inch OLED from LG, which, Alex, I believe you've had your eye on. Yeah, this is the one where I've been using a Samsung NU8000 uh, ever since, I can't remember, I bought it around the time Hitman 2 came around. That's what I remember. I can't remember exactly what year in this post-corona time, or this corona time, whatever that was. Uh, but a fine enough display, but I've been a bit uh, annoyed with the way uh, VRR is handled on it. I'm a bit annoyed with just being 2.0. I've been wanting to upgrade for a long time, but I realized that for a desk, and I'm using this in a PC editing situation, playing game situation, where I'm close to the screen, that 55 inches is way too large for me. Uh, just like uh, density, I'm like craning my head a little bit and things like that, and I don't find that very comfortable always. And also 60 hertz desktop. I really dislike 60 hertz desktop. It's like, I mean, Rich can talk about this probably for a long time too, but after you've been at 120 on the desktop, going back to 60 is almost eye-searing. 
Uh, so this display in this 42-inch uh, profile uh, is kind of perfect for my desk size and all the uh, kind of things I'd want with that 120 hertz desktop covering, I think, two HDMI 2.1 inputs and things like that. So I could be switching between uh, PC and also capture output at the exact same time really easily with this just a flick. Uh, and I'm really excited for this because I've been looking for it a long time. It's going to replace my panel. I think this should be uh, being previewed and put out in 2022 spring. It's usually uh, so when they I'll hit, be, yeah. Yeah, I'll be I'll be upgrading around then. Those QD OLEDs that you're talking about, though, I think those are more uh, later in the year productions. I don't actually think they're going to be starting the year without those. Uh, so it should be interesting to see that. Uh, there's been some other, obviously, OLED uh, displays there. I also saw, I think there was like a... Maybe there was a 55-inch curved or something like that, unless that isn't OLED, I'm mistaken. But there was, there's been a lot of really cool OLED uh, stuff at CES this year, as well as just uh, monitor things in general. With people actually starting to, we've reached like a, we've plateaued a bit where I feel like the technology on all sides is matured, and we're starting to get actually like consumer features that you know we're interested in. It's taken this long to finally get gamer and uh, desktop usage orientated OLEDs, and I'm super excited about that. Well, have you physically seen a 48-inch OLED in real life, Alex? Because I honestly think that 42, having spent a year now with a 48, if I went to a 42 on my desktop, I'd probably be a bit unhappy with it. Oh, really? No. So, Okay, so maybe so I should do that first. <laughs> you should eyeball it because the 48 inches have actually collapsed in price. They were like half the price of what I paid for it last Black Friday. Oh, wow. Mm. Okay. And secondly, uh, yes, the 120 hertz desktop is a game changer and just as it is for smartphones, which leads me on to, uh, to, to you, John, because um, since 2017, when I first got my hands on a Razer phone, <laughs> I've been mocking the 60 hertz screen of your iPhone. Yes. <laughs> mocking. Uh, and uh, <laughs> but now you have the new iPhone with 120 hertz screen. Yeah. Are you are you now a convert? Yeah, I mean, you know, as always, Apple's late to the party on cutting edge technology features, uh, except for the silicon, which is usually really good. But yeah, they finally added 120 hertz to the phone, and of course, it does make a huge difference. It's it's actually a really stunning screen in general. Like they did increase the peak brightness of it which is useful because you are often outdoors. Uh, and also the, the HDR support is genuinely impressive. The fact that you can film in Dolby Vision and see it right there on the phone, it's uh, it looks pretty striking, I have to say. But just using 120 hertz on the main screen uh, is really good, especially because, you know, as you'd expect, the, the silicon itself can handle that very, very well. So there's not any sort of latency or skipping. It's just, it's very, very fluid. Absolutely. And it's just the, the movement when you scroll on the phone that's just totally different and better. Now, you know, not that I play games on my phone much, but it is cool to be able to play classic Doom at 120 frames per second on a phone. Oh, does it actually scale that high? Yeah, that's it cool. does. Yeah. And it's just like, I, I don't know, there's just something crazy about seeing a game like running at 120 FPS on a phone. I'm just like, okay, this is pretty, this is pretty rad. Now, let's let's go back to some uh, CES news. AMD had uh, quite an impressive presentation, I think. They announced um, Zen 3 Plus Ryzen 6000 mobile chips with RDNA 2 graphics, 6 nanometer. Uh, we're going to be seeing a, a lot of 6 nanometer this year, although I suspect it's probably just going to be kind of like an iterative improvement over 7 um, but we shall see. Uh, there was some controversy over them comparing their new APU to their old one with like twice the power budget, which um, I don't, you know, here's the thing. I don't quite understand why 
these kind of weird benchmarks happen because they're going to get found out. You know, why why put yourself through that? It's, um, it's very the strange. The other thing that which which kind of, up, not, not going to say upset me, but made me internally groan was that they were talking about performance of games with their new mobile chipsets uh, with FSR enabled. So it's like, oh, 1080p FSR, it's 59 frames per second. It's like, well, what about the, A, what about the games that don't run with FSR? And B, if FSR is essentially running at a lower native resolution, like 720p, then it's a 720p experience, essentially. So, you know, and I actually think, you know, that should extend to anything, whether it's DLSS or um, uh, XCSS. I don't think your headline benchmarks should be using reconstruction. It's not the... It's not the way to do it, really. Thinking of that, Rich, did you guys see over the holidays AMD put out like a screenshot for God of War, the PC version, where they're like, hey, you can play this on this graphics card at like 56 FPS or something with FSR. And I'm just like, yeah, that's wh- a weird why <laughs> would you put something like that out? Like That, that is actually not good news. Yeah, like, it was RX 1600. They said ultra quality, it's like 57 or something FPS, 56 FPS. I have no idea why they said that. And that's just such a weird number because that doesn't obviously mean the game is constantly ready at 57 or 56 FPS. Well, that's oh, yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, it's an average, right? And that's yeah. weird. It, could be, it could be spending a lot of the time in the 40s for all we know. It's, it's, you kind of need the headline figures though, right? I think there's kind of an in, an interesting discussion on how you should present benchmarks. I think possibly the way forward is um, essentially what uh, has been done in the past, which is to just to use a game's inbuilt benchmark, and then you've got a reference point that you can actually take that figure out and, and move it on to another GPU for some kind of comparison point. Um, but they had a Radeon... Um, RX 6500 XT for desktops. Interesting stuff there. RDNA 2 being scaled down once more. Um, but the clocks are going up. I mean, we're talking about 2.6 gigahertz game clock, which 2.6 gigahertz for a GPU. This is actually really impressive stuff. So, I mean, we're going to be taking a look at all of these um, products as and when they appear. Um, I don't really want to spend too much time on it, but people were talking about Radeon Super Resolution which it seems to be a response to NVIDIA's um, uh, application of NIS. Uh, ups- upscaling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Upscaling um, any game within the driver. But it is essentially upscaling, so it's not particularly interesting unless you really love F- FSR. Um, and then we have the NVIDIA side of things where um, the, um, the presentation was kind of... Uh, there was it was light, wasn't it? There wasn't a huge amount in there. We had two GPU announcements, however. Um, on the top end, thirteen ninety Ti, which looks to be faster memory, faster clocks, um, and a uh, huge power budget. If the rumors are to be believed, um, so I'm going to be interested to see how much can be squeezed out of the silicon. If we take thirty seventy Ti, which tried the same trick as a uh, as a kind of um, uh, example it didn't do a huge amount to it this just seems like a weird product to me i mean what do you guys think because i I, i'm not really sure that this is the time and place for something like this i don't think the optics are good um and i think the other thing about it is that um uh, it's okay to have these super niche products which appeal to a super niche audience that are willing to spend stupid amounts of money for 5% or 10%, 15%, whatever, of extra performance. 
But if you're in the ballpark of a factory overclocked 3090, then I don't think you should be calling it a TI or TIE. <laughs> so I think it's all going to come down to the numbers. Uh, what I did find more interesting was the 3050, uh, which is a MSRP 249 new ampere silicon um, aimed at 1080p gaming. Um, whether we'll actually get to see one at 249 at this point remains to be seen. But anything that takes the stack down um, below 3060 and uh, gives you more accessibility on I see cards like this and I think, oh, this is a good card for my son kind of kind of thing. You know, it's that range where it's like it's something that can play the types of games that kids might play, uh, but it's affordable. So that's actually a really good use case for that, I think. Well, I mean, what do you make of these new GPUs, Alex? Um, I, I actually like uh, the uh, RDNA 2 uh, being put into APU news quite a bit because it means DX12U feature support on broad range of devices to further, uh, I would say, give developers the impetus and the push to actually implement things like ray tracing, mesh shaders, VRS, and all that good stuff, which I really love. Uh, on the NVIDIA side of things, um, I, I like you guys, uh, 3090 Ti, uh, I, it, it, I don't see uh, much great purpose for it other than some nice uh, benching stuff. And for the 3050, as far as I understand, there's no Founders Edition there. Um, and that's usually a great way to ensure MSRP being somewhat held on the line if you wanted to grab one. Uh, because, uh, well, it's better than, because uh, there, there, there's like a semi-standard markup uh, that happens when you go to sometimes board partners where the GPU actually is, you know, sub, you know, standard GPU, whatever. It has all the stuff that the Founders Edition may have. Uh, but then they kind of mark up the price a bit more by throwing out a fancy cooler that it probably really doesn't require. And so it like leaves the market to only have these fancy cooler versions. And that's the only one you can really find. And you can't pair back price if you really want to, uh, which is why those Founders Editions have been somewhat better in the past to have on the side there. I also think they're just pretty cards. Uh, <laughs> but there's no Founders Edition here, so it's only going to be third-party cards. So I think it's going to have... So when they say 249 MSRP, I think that's completely unrealistic, uh, even from the partners. That's just the recommendation price from NVIDIA there. That's the problem, though, is like, will anybody be able to purchase any of these cards? Like in the keynote, they were like, we can't wait to get these cards into gamers' hands. And I'm just thinking yeah, that like, was a groan inducer, like really? <laughs> like, I mean, really? I'm sure yeah. it would be awesome to get them into the hands of gamers, but like the chip shortage, it continues. <laughs> Sony's been pretty good, uh, for example, with I think like the uh, like get yourself on a list to get a PS5 thing, right? Isn't isn't that they pretty good with they've, that? They've done that. Yeah. Yeah. So what what is taking? Why are Nvidia and AMD dragging their heels in this direction in comparison? Why is it so much harder for them to set up a system to allow you to get a GPU? And I've got some theories there. I mean, first of all, going back to the 3050, um, it's a tiny chip. You don't need a gigantic cooler. You just do not need it. So um, I'm hoping that there will be cards with bargain basement coolers uh, that are at, uh, are at MSRP or close to it. The question is whether retailers will offer it to you at MSRP. Um, secondly, this here's the thing, right? And this is crucial to um, the uh, healthiness of the of the PC gaming market, hardware market. Um, 
with the consoles, there hasn't been the same level of price gouging and um, accessibility issues that there have been with GPUs. And I honestly think NVIDIA and AMD need to ask themselves why. You know, um, in the UK, a PlayStation 5, if you get a scalped one, it's like 50 quid more than a retail unit. Uh, go onto Facebook Marketplace, there they are. 50 quid over standard, you can have it in your hands. It's not ideal, but basically the supply um, side economics have driven the price down, even for scalpers. Question is, why isn't this happening for PC GPUs? Maybe it's because um, uh, there's there's a middleman, right? There's there's two middlemen essentially. There's the retailer, and then there's the um, you know Asus, MSI, the partner. So there seems to be this whole level of strata that isn't there on either CPUs um, or storage or or, or memory. Um, seemingly, I mean, obviously they do buy in memory from the like of uh, likes of Samsung, Micron, etc. But we aren't seeing these kind of wholesale price gouging in any other PC component right now. I mean, Intel AMD CPUs, they make them, or, or other TSMC or, or Intel's foundries make them. They go to the retailers, they go out, and there have been some pretty good deals. You know, uh, 12400 has just uh, released. Uh, seems to be uh, getting a huge amount of good reviews, and it's, it's, it's well-priced. Now, the problem is, is that the GPU is like the heart of the games machine, right? If you haven't got a, an upgrade path for your GPU, uh, the chances that you're going to upgrade the rest of your system reduce, which means that the entire PC ecosystem is being held back by the fact that you can't get a GPU. And this has to be resolved. Now, there have been um, uh, moves like from EVGA where they had their waiting list. Uh, the Verge famously had a story where it took them nine months to get a 3060. A 3060. Uh, this has got, I mean, you know, it, times have, have obviously uh, got to, well, things have got to move on, right? Because this existing system of strata seems to be just gouging everybody and it isn't, um, it's, it's causing massive problems across the entire ecosystem. And I think, Alex, that's why they can't do the waiting list stuff like Sony because of the partner situation as well. Because, you know, the PlayStation 5 is a Sony product only. Uh, but when you have these graphics cards, I mean, maybe for Founders Editions, <laughs> I don't know, they could have done something, but for all these other partner cards, like, you know, it's not really up to NVIDIA, right? Or AMD. You know, the other thing is that um, prior to uh, the 3050, there was the 2060 12 gig version. And I was kind of optimistic that this was going to be a move to push more GPUs into the market and to address the only real flaw I had, I could find with the 2060, which was that, you know, it didn't really have enough memory. Um, but, you know, it turns out that because it's a 2060, there's no hash rate limiter on it. Therefore, the miners loved it, snapped it all up. But the partners weren't helping. I mean, there were MSRPs of like $550 for a 2060. Joke. What a joke. I mean, yeah. this is like 3060 Ti money for a 2060. That's insane. You know, no. get in the sea. That's it. <laughs> Things have got to change. And, um, you know, it is the, the point now is that the whole PC ecosystem is being held back by, I mean, why upgrade if you can't upgrade your GPU? That's, that's a real problem. That's a real problem. Uh, John, John, you, you're a BMW man. You were mm -hmm. taken with their paint color changing technology. Yes, that's right. So this is one of my favorite things they showed and it's still very early, but essentially they showed off a car that uses 
e-ink technology, uh, essentially, at, for its surface coating. So it uses millions of these little microcapsules. Uh, and the idea is essentially, with the press of a button, you can change the color of your car. Uh, of course, currently, it's literally white, gray, and black that you can cycle between. Uh, but, you know, they cited some interesting ideas beyond just the look of the car. It can also have an impact on, like, thermals, for instance, right? Black versus white in the sun and, you know, what that can mean. Uh, stuff like that. So, you know, again, it's clearly like a research and development kind of project for them. Not something that's going to be shipping in new cars this year or anything like that. But it's something I had never even considered. And it just, you know, it took my imagination away. I, I like the idea of a future where you essentially no longer need to worry about which color car you buy. And you can customize the color of it you know, using like, say the screen in your car, you go in there. It's like, Oh, today I feel like, uh, it's a red day, you know, something like that. Like that would be, that's the future for me. And this, this, this is, uh, <laughs> I would love to see it. I really hope that this works out. The only thing I've heard though, is that because currently in its current state, it does seem to be extremely sensitive to temperature. So they actually had two cars over there for CES, just in case one of them had issues with the changing of the color. Uh, so, you know, you can see it's very prototypey still, but the fact that it works at all in the way it looks is just, that's just darn cool. I love this kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I have to admit, I've got a white car and it's not winter friendly no. <laughs> to say the least. It gets dirty very quickly. Um, but meanwhile, in the summer, it's happy days if you've got a white car because it reflects more of the heat. So, yes, uh, interesting sort of side projects there that, that sort of emerged at CES. And uh, also the news that Sony is um, getting into electric cars, which is one of my passions. And, um, yeah, so they're going to be spinning off a company. They've previously announced um, a, a Vision S01 Coupe, um, and they've now got a, a Vision S02 SUV vehicle. Really interesting to see Sony getting into this market. All I'm going to say is that, man, it's it's a brutal marketplace. This is cutting-edge technology here. Um, Dyson, the vacuum cleaner people, they spent, I think it was up to something like a billion dollars in investing in uh, electric cars, and then they gave up <laughs> because they couldn't. they just couldn't get competitive. So for an upstart like Sony to, to kind of try and disrupt this marketplace, it's going to be really difficult. The thing is, is I'm just, I want this to happen for the pure reason of them being able to update the firmware in the car and have the list uh, improved stability. And it actually means something. Yes. <laughs> well, will it though? That's the thing. Oh, that's true. Historic. Yeah. That's historically. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so some really interesting stuff coming out of CES there. I mean, electric cars. Well, I'd love to drive a Sony electric car, but there's so much that, you know, the investment that's required, you know, just in the computer side of things, the battery management side of things, uh, battery chemistry. Man, it's, uh, it's a stiff challenge. The car situation is tough right now because cars are also impacted by the chip shortage to the point where automobile prices in general are quite high shall we say yeah i've just sold my bmw for um uh, about 1700 pounds more than i paid for it yeah and the one i got last year uh looking at it the average prices on those are also above what i paid so it's which is unprecedented i've never seen know, that before 
cars have never, you know, basically you have to accept that you're going to lose a big chunk of money on a new car or even a semi-new car. So, yeah, crazy, crazy things happening. I think we should uh, quickly talk quick, uh, very, very quickly about Intel. Oh, great. Yeah, so this one, uh, uh, they in their showing the press briefing, they didn't really actually show off uh, anything about Intel Arc uh, of really note. Like they showed off a recording, a 30 FPS recording of a game saying it's running well on Intel Arc, which doesn't really do much for the audience, doesn't say anything about the performance, the price, the model, all, all those great things. Uh, but I guess on the software stack side of things, uh, we are seeing the first implementations of Intel sponsored games. And this is really cool, I think, because I'm a, I'm a big fan of DLSS, but I've always wanted NVIDIA to open it up uh, and allow it to run on any GPU, but just have the performance penalty being the problem. Uh, I think that would be a great way to do it. And it seems that's the path Intel's taken with XESS, their uh, machine learned image reconstruction technique. And the first couple of games that we're going to be seeing with it, there was a number of them announced, but the ones that I'm really keen on are Hitman 3 and Death Stranding Director's Cut. I think it is called the Director's Cut. Um, because... Uh, Death, Death Stranding already has DLSS. I'm pretty sure when the director's cut comes out, it'll be updated to 2.3 or whatever. So we're going to have really cool image comparisons when that comes out of XESS directly next to DLSS. And, you know, that's exactly what I wanted to see, the competing technologies right next to each other. And then we could see about the performance differences between them, which will also be very curious. Uh, and on the side... Yeah, on the side of Hitman, we also have there a game which was originally Intel sponsored. That's why I had things like VRS Tier 1 originally. And I think like it's like one of the few games that's really optimized for using efficiency cores really well, I think, on Alder Lake side of things. Uh, but uh, this time, it's an Intel-sponsored game, but we can see how Intel has a different sponsoring strategy than, say, AMD, where the launch version of Hitman 3 coming out that will get, you know, um, things like DirectX Ray Tracing and XESS will also be getting DLSS 2.3. So Intel is actually fine with competitor technologies being built into the game. I love that. <laughs> that's good. That's good news uh, for everyone in the, the GPU gaming sphere. So that's the good stuff about Intel. The rest of the stuff, I have no idea why they haven't shown off Arc GPUs in a, like a meaningful way yet. I don't know what they're waiting on for. Yeah, they're just telling us there's going to be a lot of them. <laughs> that was that was the that was the takeaway. Um, I think the thing that I'm curious about most with XESS beyond the uh, the quality of it is the uh, DP4A path, um, because this opens the door to um, XESS working on Pascal cards, which are still you know widely being used, and uh, even Intel uh, iGPUs. Um, what is the performance cost of it when you don't have those matrix uh, engines uh, that are in the Arc um, uh, GPUs? I can't wait to find out. I really want to see this. And um, I believe DP4A may well be supported on the console APUs as yeah, well. I think it's supported on Xbox side. I need to check up if it's actually supported on whatever uh, the PlayStation 5 has. I suspect it will be because yeah. the... Um, uh, Vega supports it, so it should, in theory, uh, run on into Navi and therefore into the PlayStation Five GPU, which be begs the question: 
of um, what's happening with in, um, Microsoft's AI upscaling, which we were uh, talking about many moons ago. There's been no sort of public movement on that. Zero. Right? Yeah, so interesting stuff. Um, but let's move on to the next topic. And I've actually shunted this one up the running order because I'm so uh, sort of incensed and angry about it. I just want to get it out of my system. We had this bizarre situation over Christmas. I don't, I don't know whether they released this statement over Christmas just to kind of sneak it out or whatever. But the Square Enix CEO. Oh, this uh, thing. Well, yeah. Yes. He's pledged allegiance. <laughs> <laughs> he's pledged fealty to NFT and the blockchain. Yeah. Which, um, well, I, I honestly think this thing is going to die a death quite quickly. Um, but, well, John. To start with, I would say I saw some numbers recently. I think it was revealed that upwards of 300,000 people have invested in NFTs. Uh, in 2021, I think that's right. If that's the case, then that is essentially half of the Virtual Boy install base. Um, so they're very loud about it, I would say. So the thing about NFT stuff, really, is that all of the problems that they claim that they're trying to solve with NFTs are things that, that have already existed. You can do everything without NFTs, such as paid mods. Uh, the question is, is I don't understand why they think that this is suddenly the solution to solve this. There's no real value here. And I mean, it, this is this is such a broad topic that we can't possibly discuss it in much detail on the DF Direct. But, you know, something as simple as like people wanting a unique asset in a game and an asset that carries across different games. And they always ignore the back end side of things like these assets don't just make themselves. An artist has to put time in to create this stuff. You know, I don't understand how it's realistic to think that you can create all these unique elements and then to bring them over to other games, the amount of time and engineering that this takes and what's even the point. Like, the whole thing just seems like they're so focused on, like, just having these things. They're not actually thinking about any practical realities of how it would be used or why. And... On top of all that, I mean, just we're just getting into the weeds of stuff that I don't like about modern games anyway, so it was never going to appeal to me, but it's like taking those things and making it much worse. I don't know, it's just... And nobody seems to be into this, including the Square, the Square Enix CEO, his wording even suggested that he knows that most people don't like this stuff, but yes. they're going to do it anyway. <laughs> uh, and it's just, I hate to see that. It's, it's really, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I just like the wording on the sheet here pledges allegiance <laughs> when he didn't really well i guess yeah. he did uh, they, they got to explore it and but you know we saw what happened with stalker 2 where you know they announced it then they unannounced it owing to the massive backlash i'm glad they did and, oh my god yeah and uh, i believe that ubisoft perhaps inevitably uh tried their hand at it and nobody was interested i just think that you can you can call it you know, as long as you, I don't have any problem with the introducing these things, um, but the concept of tying it to the blockchain with the huge environmental concerns that that has is problematic. And as you say, uh, John, there's there's no reason why it can't be done without the blockchain and has been done without the blockchain. I mean, look at Star Citizen, for example. Um, that's That's built a, a huge economy based on goods that 
um, uh, you have to buy separately. You don't need an NFT to do it, right? I liken this situation almost to, do you guys remember the real money auction house in Diablo 3? Oh, God, but that, that exploded super hard. That was a disaster. <laughs> I feel like this is exactly that same type of thing uh, where it just isn't going to work. People don't want this stuff. For me, so the part of that letter that really annoyed me, uh, I don't have the direct quote on top of my head, but it's basically something like, so most people currently play games for fun. I think that's the implication that I really disliked. Uh, these, this like idea that we need to profit optimize fun or just gameplay in general so towards people's desire to play games is to be based upon like ideas of profit, which for me, the, it's very intangible profit if I play a game. It's uh, the enjoyment, uh, the challenge, uh, the emotional storylines that I have in games and things like that, connection to characters. It's nothing to do with me wanting to earn money in the real world. Um, so I just like that, that that's the implication uh, as a part of this, as if in the future, it's all gonna be about just making money in the metaverse and shopping at Walmart and VR. I have no idea. Like, I have no idea. The metaverse has got to die horribly. Uh, yeah. Just the fact that this... must be eliminated. This is we coming must rise out. up and stop the metaverse. I agree. It's not going to uh, happen with Square Enix, though. Yeah, yeah. The, the problem is that just you listen to the words that he's speaking and what he's trying to say here, and whether or not this succeeds is almost beside the point. It's clear that what he wants is actually detrimental to the core of making games in the first place. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's almost like it's, it's taking, it's going down the path that most people don't want. And if this has any sort of impact down the company, uh, I think it could be disastrous. I agree. At least for those that love games. It's also bringing in words like fungible into the, uh, into the Destroy it. We don't, it's, we don't it's, need it that. It must be stopped. <laughs> Get rid of that. And uh, yeah, while we're at it, um, the, I am going to rant about the, the metaverse, which I, I was kind of wondering what it actually is. And it seems to be about doing things in VR, which can be done a lot more efficiently without VR. So what's the point? I mean, you know, I was actually quite heartened to see uh, John Carmack's response to uh, Meta's metaverse initiative. It's like, okay, well, it's, it's a thing, it's happening. But, you know, fundamentally, all of these things are just adding friction to something that already works perfectly well or where there is already an existing technology that does the job more efficiently. I was obviously seeing this thing yesterday about a, a supermarket that was uh, showing shopping in VR. Tell me that this is more efficient than just, you know, searching for something on a web browser. It's not. This is Microsoft Bob. It the is. It's just like version, or an extra layer version. of crap. It's a, it's a layer <laughs> yeah. to obfuscate like a useful user interface with something that resembles what we believe to be reality. Uh, but doing it this way is inefficient, slow, time-consuming, and just it's, it's, it doesn't make sense. Gen, the next-gen Connect. It or, no, it's more like the next-gen version of uh, PlayStation Home only all the way doubled down. Like I feel like there was a time when, when home was first announced where there was this concern that it might become the PlayStation 3's user interface in general, and everything you do is done through home, which would have been such a disaster. 
Like, I know people had some fun with Home in the end, but as a full user interface, that would have been a terrible thing. Nobody would nobody would like that. Uh, and that feels like they're doing this again with this metaverse stuff. And it, it's got to stop. It never works. Nobody wants this. I mean, VR is a different thing entirely. I mean, you know, properly utilized, it can do amazing things, but it shouldn't be complicating existing tasks. And uh, just it just winds me up. And um, yes, NFTs as well. The whole point of VR is to allow you to experience things you probably couldn't experience normally. So why would you take things that you can do anytime and put them in VR? It doesn't make sense. It's a terrible idea. So yeah, I mean, you know, we've got to stop all of this stuff. And I suspect it will be stopped simply because in the case of the metaverse, it just doesn't do anything effectively from what I can see. And in the case of NF NFTs, it's now a poison chalice, right? Yeah. If you, you know, mention the blockchain or NF NFT to gamers and your game is effectively blacklisted. So Square Enix, take note. Um, let's move on. Minor drama this week where um, it was revealed that Xbox dev mode for the Xbox consoles, which essentially allows you to develop your own games and emulators and whatnot and uh, share them, um, was disabled. And uh, MVG did a pretty comprehensive video on that. And then 24 hours later, uh, Jason modeled for Microsoft, less than 24 hours later, Jason modeled for Microsoft basically said, yeah, it's a mistake. Um, nothing's changing you'll get your access back um i think on the one hand there's i think there's two topics here first of all there's the reaction to something happening um when we were doing the fps boost video john um for the new titles we discovered that those titles didn't work as digital downloads on xbox 360 anymore and um so what what should we do should we put out a news story saying Xbox 360 digital downloads don't work anymore? Or should we just talk to Microsoft and say, hey, we've noticed this, what's happening? And we get a response back saying, oh, it's a mistake, it'll be fixed. And indeed it was fixed. Um, that's one point. Uh, the, the next point is, um, I think the Xbox dev mode is actually going to blossom and produce some fantastic things. And it's kind of been hinted at by Phil Spencer himself, where he was um, perhaps not, explicitly but he seemed to be getting behind the concept of emulation as a way to preserve games that can't be preserved via official channels right what it sounded like yeah, yeah it sounded that way any thoughts on this i mean it's kind of minor drama now because we've been told that it's you know that it's not happening it is not happening but also from what i understand it's now possible to install emulators and such without even using dev mode so it's not really necessary at this point. Like it really is for people that want to develop on the system. The one thing that's interesting about here is just it shows the complicated beast that is Microsoft uh, because the Xbox team is only one, uh, one part of this. Uh, I think Jason Ronald, had he known beforehand that this was happening, he would have just stopped it. But, you know, with middle management and the fact that this also touches other aspects of Microsoft business, uh, it, it makes sense that probably someone just disabled these things uh, based upon a manager's decision, and then it only had repercussions later on on the Xbox side for 
you know, users that like playing uh, emulators or like developing on in a very low capacity. So uh, this has happened before with Microsoft where like the hand is not talking to the foot or however you say that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the hand is not talking I, to I don't know. The, the brain, I don't know. I can't remember the, the English uh, aphorism for that. Uh, but, What's uh, the German uh, one then? I don't know. Uh, you don't know at all a, then? I, I don't okay. know anything at all. Um, okay, so the hand is not talking to the foot, and this, yeah, but you're right, mistakes happened. Exactly yeah. what happened with the uh, Xbox. I mean, basically, what happened was we were trying to get Xbox 360 footage of FPS boost games, and we had those titles in our digital libraries. If we had downloaded them, the ones that we had downloaded previously were working fine, but ones that we re downloaded weren't working fine, and I suspect it was maybe downloading the x86 recompile or something but regardless it was it was a minor drama and it was fixed but you're right there is when you're dealing with a company like microsoft there's strata right lots and lots of different tiers lots and lots of different uh, <laughs> uh hands not talking to the legs <laughs> and the feet that's right um but you know it's stuff that um uh, does usually get fixed i think it's just basically um it might be worth flagging this stuff uh, rather than sort of uh, talking about stuff being removed completely because uh, that doesn't seem to be the case here. But I guess, you know, happy days. Dev mode isn't going away. Putting out the video and the reaction at least probably secures the fact that it won't disappear now. Yeah, I think that's probably a good point, actually, because it, it sort of signifies the, the, the strength of feeling within certain communities. Microsoft yeah. saw that. They're like, oh, this is a strong reaction. We don't want this. Enough. You know. Yeah. Yeah, which is fair enough, actually. Okay, so let's move on to the final topic here, something we haven't really investigated in depth, but it's certainly interesting. Um, Alan Wake Remastered has added auto HDR support for Xbox Series S and X consoles, according to uh, Remedy's latest patch notes, uh, which, which has raised a few questions uh, in these parts. Right, John? Yeah, so this is this has a lot of potential, I think, the because... So this is a native application, right? Alan Wake Remastered. And um, until now, uh, auto HDR stuff has always been limited to backwards compatible titles. So the fact that this is... I have So I haven't actually tested this myself, but assuming that it works, this suggests then that they can now add auto HDR to native Xbox Series games, uh, which is, I think, kind of important and awesome because that would suggest then that games that don't have HDR, uh, you can now have a reasonably good HDR experience with them. The only thing I, I'm not 100% sure on is, is this, I, is this Gen 9 aware or full native? I guess that's the, that's what I'm not completely... That's the question. We'd need to download and take oh, a look yeah. at it. And, um, Either way, the, the... We, we should report back on this, I think, because the potential is high here. Because there are still... Annoyingly, a surprising number of games that ship without HDR support, which is madness at this point, I have to say. Um, and being able to essentially inject HDR into these games, uh, I think, is a huge thing. And that would mean I would play even more third-party games on Xbox over any other platform to, as well. Because, uh, yeah, HDR is really important, I think. Yeah, I am interested about this because if it is a Gen 9 aware title, then it's probably not that much of a big deal because it would be baked into the system and it would likely be just a flag that's been um, 
set active to just tap, tap into that system level feature. However, if it is a native Xbox series title and the developer is able to say, well, our, our engine doesn't support HDR, but we can um, uh, tap into auto HDR via Microsoft's technology, then, then that's actually a really good and interesting thing. Um, but you've probably had more experience with auto HDR than any one of us, um, John. Generally, how, how is it holding up? Oh, I, I find that in most cases, it's a, a marked improvement over not using HDR at all. Um, and in fact, it does it, it produces a really interesting result because it does tend to produce very bright highlights. Uh, and occasionally that can look weird. But by and large, I actually think it works really well. And I'm kind of impressed with the fact that the auto HDR feature can often produce results superior to native HDR implementations in some older titles. So this is interesting. One thing I'm not sure about with auto HDR is it's obviously putting it in the higher uh, uh, brightness range and allowing individual elements to have a certain level of brightness like you're talking about. But does it do anything for the color space? Does it like dither the color no. space or something uh, like that? Okay. So I don't think it's like wide color gamut or anything like that. It's so. I, I'm not actually sure what they're doing on that. I mean, it doesn't change the game's color space, obviously. Uh, there may be something being done on the audio HDR side, to, you know, of course, since that does HDR kind of leans on 10-bit color anyway. So, but that is, that's actually a good question. But I suspect it's something that's adjacent to the game rather than directly impacting what the game is doing. Which is which would be key, I think, to this because if it did actually have to interface more directly with the game, then I could see there being more issues with doing native Xbox Series games. Uh, well, let's wrap up. That's the news uh, for the first edition of DF Direct in 2022. Now let's talk about some content. Obviously, we've only just got back to work from the uh, the Christmas break, and uh, yeah, lots of thoughts about what we want to do in 2022. And um, I guess there's some general kind of, <laughs> you might call them New Year's resolutions, stuff that we want to do. Um, I think I'm going to kick off on this one. I want to see the end of pixel counting in 2022. We've discussed it at length in 2021. But uh, I think at the end of the day, um, having now seen games running uh, without any form of temporal reconstruction, you know, literally looking at their native resolution before any kind of reconstruction, um, there's there's just no relation to between or very little relation between native resolution rendering and your final output. Um, so it's the final output that is what the eye is seeing, right? And so therefore, it's going to be about um, uh, finding a way to more accurately measure image quality in terms of the end user experience as opposed to uh, what the native resolution may be. I think that's really important because in so many cases, if you look at the the native base resolution and say across a range of titles, what you actually see to the eye can be so different between all of them that saying that they're all like say 1080p is actually useless. That tells you nothing. I mean, it's it's it does tell you something like an interesting factoid, but it doesn't give you an actual indication of what it looks like to the eye and that's ultimately what's most important here so i think we're trying to explore a way to visualize and discuss this to give people a better idea of how sharp an image is versus you know sort of the different like baselines 
Uh, and it's a tricky thing to tackle, but I, I agree with you, Rich. I think we're beyond the point where just saying X resolution, I, I don't think it's valuable anymore. It's not, it's not the same as it used to be. I mean, here's the thing, right? I mean, pretty much since day one of PS4 Pro, we've seen a lot of innovative techniques that make games look good on a 4K uh, screen by using uh, much lower pixel counts internally. And um, it's to the point now where even if you've got like a, a fairly basic upscale um, from like 1620p, it can look good depending on the content, right? And this is why um, some titles with FSR, for example, look all right. Um, because it really is content dependent. Um, and now, you know, with the reconstruction techniques like DLSS, potentially XESS, you know, you've got the situation where 1080p can look really good on a 4K screen. It doesn't look like 1080p by any stretch of the imagination. More importantly, Rich, there's, there's elements where you could have a native resolution that's lower than using DLSS. You end up with a result that actually looks better than native 4k for instance exactly yes yeah. so this is something which you know it's uncharted territory really and um there needs to be a way to uh to sort of measure the actual image that you're getting as opposed to <laughs> i mean it has been reduced to trying to find edges where you can't actually see them during the normal run of play so you end up you end up with a, a hugely complicated procedure that gives you an end number that doesn't really mean anything anymore. So what's the point? I, I agree. I think that's the key right there. It's like now this the numbers you get from pixel counting no longer represent the normal gameplay. We're just looking for ultra edge cases now, which is just kind of silly. And it just ends up becoming sort of like uh, ammunition for people, even though it ultimately is meaningless in terms of what you see by eye. So it's better to look at it from a different perspective now, I think. And, you know, finding a way to visualize that, that's that's the key here, I think. And but here's the thing, like, if there are jaggies, if, there, if it is a, a traditional presentation, then, you know, maybe the metric is more valid. It's right? You're right. It's, it still it's has still value, valid. especially, like, when you're looking at systems like the Switch, right? I'm sure we're still going to be <laughs> yeah. doing pixel counts on Switch games, for instance, because it is actually still relevant there. Uh, this is more for the higher end stuff uh, where you're trying to push to 4K and there's a lot of fancy tricks and techniques to get there uh, where it's no longer that important. So it does kind of vary per content. Absolutely. Uh, so that is my kind of New Year's resolution, ironically, <laughs> uh, to not talk about resolution, but to actually talk about what's actually appearing on the screen, which is the kind of like the the end game really but here's the thing right any programmatic approach that you come up with to address this has to be augmented with uh, subjective analysis from the uh, from the analyst right um, and we've kind of seen that with uh, DLSS you know there's going to be edge cases where the upscaling isn't so good uh, the ghosting situation in Death Stranding for example I don't think it actually impacted the quality of the game experience. No, not at all. Subject. It was just a curio. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there were situations in cyberpunk where the ghosting was kind of noticeable and not right. Interesting thing. It was noticeable there, but I actually think in some games, the ghosting can have a, a, an actual positive effect. Like I've seen DLSS applied to like little particles through the air and you end up with this really neat looking sort of particle trail that isn't necessarily supposed to be there, but it winds up like looking visually nicer than without it so it's like 
do you really want to get rid of that? You know, it looks like particle a, stretching, like motion. Yeah, exactly. Blur. Yeah, it's interesting. Some old school particle okay. stretching. <laughs> uh, any New Year's resolution work-wise for you, Alex? Uh, yes, I would like to return to um, PC time capsule videos uh, to a good degree here because now I've got a lot more. Some which have not been shown on the channel. I have a. Windows XP machine uh, with a Pentium 4 running at, I can choose what it's running at, anywhere from 3.0 to 3.6 gigahertz uh, very easily. And uh, right now there's an NVIDIA GeForce 4 Ti 200. I, I don't want to say that wrong. Uh, maybe it's just a GeForce 4. But either way, a GPU that came around 2002. But I have so many other GPUs that fit into that machine really well, uh, anywhere from like uh, like... 5000 series, Radeon, down to Radeon 7000 series. I can cover a lot of really cool things in that time period. I have my Windows 98 machine, which is yet to be focused on at all for that. And what I would love to do with these time capsule videos is do it like we did the last Dead Space one, which was really fun, where we have the PC running next to the Xbox. And if we get Audi in on this, we have it running next to like the PS3. And we could do this for Xbox or PS2 as well with the equivalent PC hardware, since I've got a lot of hardware now. Uh, uh, so that's one thing I really want to do this year. Uh, there's a couple of tech focus videos that I have in my brain still uh, that I've yet to be covered. But the, the big one that is going to be coming up next where I still have to gather a couple more uh, developer input on it, I have contacts. Uh, which is great. People have responded back to me saying they want to get back to me about it. But it's covering the, the DX12 uh, Unreal Engine shader compilation issue, the stuttering issue in general. I want to make a video, a tech focus about... It's going to focus on Unreal Engine 4 because that's the one I have really good examples from. Uh, but it's actually just going to kind of be about shader compilation in general in the end, which is a thing that uh, has been a thorn in the side of developer and player ever since the advent of like more complex shading uh, in games. So I think it'd be really cool to get that out in a way where people understand it. And I have really concrete examples as well as really good developer input, uh, which, you know, it takes a bit to get that though. So it'll take a little bit on that. I mean, we're talking a lot about shader compilation issues with regards to Unreal Engine 4, but you know, Battlefield 5 is really Has it too. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is ruined by it. Basically, the first sort of area of any level is just really, really bad to play unless you restart and then play it through again and then everything's great. Oh. <laughs> Which, because it's all been cached. But uh, yeah, that isn't great. Um, but yeah, interesting stuff there, Alex. Uh, John, any sort of uh, resolutions for, for this year? I want to improve my pre-work optimization. So one of the big, one of the biggest issues with with like say DF Retro projects specifically, is that it requires an enormous amount of capture, and filming, like just hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and you're playing all these things. It's it's a very time consuming. Um, so this week, Audie and I sat down to try to map out most of the year in terms of what we would like to do for DF Retro. And we're trying to at least get sort of the first quarter sort of stabilized, uh, including he wants to take point on one episode as well, which could be really fun. Um, but the idea is essentially I want to spend time, you know, even months in advance, just playing and capturing the games that are going to be planned for those episodes so that by the time it's time to enter production, 
I have a solid base of stuff already done. You know what I mean? So that's that's the kind of thing I really need to focus on because um, I just, you know, the workload becomes too high when you're trying to juggle all this stuff. And, you know, I think planning is going to be a key part of making it work. So I want to improve that this year. Yeah. I mean, for the first quarter and going into April, we kind of know when the key titles are coming. So it's it, that has actually been quite useful for, for planning your time. I've already looked at the release date list and sort of hashed out, okay, these are the games that I'm probably going to be covering. Um, and, you know, we can look at that and say, okay, well, between these things, I can do this. I can do the retro project, for instance. And, you know, that's the idea is try to schedule so I feel like the sooner we have a handle on what's what's coming up, the easier it will be to actually execute. And of course, there's stuff that comes along the way that isn't necessarily planned. But uh, yeah, planning, that's that's the big thing I want to work on. Well, there's a bit on the doc- docket here saying, I didn't do Game of the Years, but what did I think of the, of the team's Games of the Year? Uh, well, I kind of like them. I thought it was a good, good content. What do you, what do you want me to say? Party. I, I think I think what we want you to say is con- confirm what we're all thinking. Is Crisis Three Remastered your game of the year again? I knew, I didn't have a chance to play it. Oh, that's all right. Shortly, uh, but uh, <laughs> I don't even own the game at this point, so um, I think I oh, should really? get it because I think I'd like to put it into uh, our revised GPU. I mean, we're going to need to revise our GPU test suite for this year, um, simply because when the uh, Alchemist GPUs come along from Intel. I'd like to have a fully refreshed lineup of games. Also, um, you know, there's stuff in the ray tracing uh, side of things, which we need to um, uh, we need to take a look at. For example, we shouldn't be testing Metro Exodus in uh, non-enhanced edition. We should be testing the enhanced edition. Simple, uh, simple changes there. But you know, obviously, more titles as well. So yes, that's uh, that's kind of my perspective on on that but crisis 3 would definitely be in there in terms of the the games of the year i thought yours was quite interesting uh alex because you had titles that i'd never experienced even heard of, <laughs> even heard of. and uh, uh, you know it was interesting stuff yeah right? pc is and, cool uh, for that kind of weird indie and, stuff and john exactly and john you had stuff also which we didn't usually cover on the channel uh, yeah, and it is. It's, I think I thought it was good to get um, a cross section of um, of gotties from across the team. That worked pretty that well. Is. It did. Yeah, so I'm, I was quite happy with our Christmas content actually, um, because we kind of kept things going while we were able to take a break, which is of crucial importance. But I should stress that coming into uh, 2022, we're still sort of you know we've got people coming back from holidays and whatnot. Things aren't going to ratchet back up to maximum warp for a while yet um so it's it's going to take a bit of time but you know not much happens in january anyway start at warp three yeah yeah (laughs) yeah why not why not (laughs) um let's move on patreon q a this is where our supporters from the df supporter program submit their questions each week for our consideration and uh, we're going to kick off with one from tom walker here why do you feel gaming has never taken off on Mac? Macs in many ways feel more static than a PC, much more like a console. Surely there is a market there. Alex? Uh, on the development side, for a really long time, Macs were limited to OpenGL and uh, driver support for features uh, to make the porting process from console or PC dev environments 
were not exactly friendly for the longest period of time. Then you also have the fact that it switched from PowerPC to Intel, away from Intel now. Uh, so you actually have a development backend uh, that you also see on phones where there's massive deprecation constantly. Similar to a console, you're right there, uh, Tom, uh, that there's like, oh, we just don't support that stuff anymore. That happens on console as well, too. Uh, not like the PC. So, but I just also think the audiences have been primarily very different um, for the longest time. Mac was orientated around, uh, you know, uh, you know, ergonomic experiences, visual experiences of just the way the product itself looks, uh, whereas a PC could just be a hideous thing. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, I guess, orientated also around for a while around development, like for creators, like it was like all about like Photoshop and, uh, you know, things that, you know, it wasn't really about gaming ever from their perspective, Apple's perspective, like a desktop gaming environment. So they didn't really push it as well as they could have, and it never developed, really. I actually think this is a legacy issue that ties to the very first Macintosh. When the Macintosh was revealed uh, early on, games were a part of it. And in fact, I believe it was supposed to ship with a game. Um, but you got to remember, in, in the mid-early 80s there, uh, IBM was like dominating the business world in a big way apple wanted in and the mac especially with that game stuff i think they it was perceived as a toy not a serious machine and they really wanted that serious machine territory at the time and so i think they famously removed the game and it was sold separately uh and i feel like that and their marketing push sort of set the tone for what the macintosh is about and when you couple that with the the high price of the machine at the beginning, it just it's it launched into a world where gaming was clearly not the focus of the machine, and it did actually end up with some pretty famous games and series that kind of started from there. Of course, like Myst started on the Mac uh, and stuff. You know, Bungie really got their start making games on the Mac with like Marathon and the like. You know, before Halo. There's a lot of stuff that had happened on the Mac. Heck, Halo was first shown at a Mac conference, as was Doom 3. Um, so I feel like Apple has flirted with games over the years, but by and large, there has been this sense that it's not really their primary target. I do think more recently, they've tried to push a little bit more for it, thanks to things like the App Store on their mobile devices uh, and seeing some success there plus the launch of things like Apple Arcade. But I don't think that I, that they'll ever really get there, and it, it does kind of stem from that long-lasting legacy that sort of almost set people in their ways, I feel, somehow. Yeah, I think uh, the other thing to add to this is that uh, Macs are actually really expensive, and uh, typically the return you get in terms of GPU horsepower uh, in relation to the same investment you'd make in a PC um, basically means that you can't really consider buying a Mac as a games machine, right? When you can get so much more from a PC, you know, so much more performance. So I think, you know, basically the power balance is is kind of set up incorrectly there. I mean, I've just got a new MacBook Pro. Uh, I've been quite impressed. I mean, I've got the, the full M1 Pro chip on it, so I don't have the full M1 Max. I've got the M1 Pro. You know, it's doing Shadow of the Tomb Raider, quite nicely at 1200p but it's you know it's this is like a, a computer that cost over 2000 pounds that's that's like you know 
ridiculous. It's, it's not great performance in terms of the investment. And you're right, Alex, the reason why I wanted uh, a Mac is for very different reasons uh, other, th other than gaming. I wanted the screen, which is beautiful. I wanted uh, the, the ergonomics, the keyboard, the mouse pad. Uh, these things are, Apple are just untouchable there. As a work device, um, the, the MacBook Pro is simply brilliant, but you know the, it, it can game, but it just isn't really a platform I'd consider for gaming at this point. Maybe the M1 Max is is different, but even if it were, that's even more expensive. So yes, that's that's kind of problematic. Man, they got close though. In the mid '90s, there was the Mac clone boom, where they briefly allowed companies to essentially build Macs that were not made by Apple. And I, a friend of mine, actually had one of those, and they were cheaper. And that was also the, the rise of 3D. Like, Apple had its own specific API for 3D on the Mac. And there was stuff happening in that space, but it never kept pace with the PC. There was also dual booting for a while. Um, oh, uh, on the I'm Intel Macs. Yeah, on the Intel Macs. Yeah. That was a big thing, but now that's gone. So, man. Let's go on. Um, let's move on to the next question. This one's from uh, Jeffrey Wichowski. Hey, DF, exclamation point. I love your videos and think they are some of the best on the web. Well, thank you. I'm a big fan of water in games yes. and especially waterfalls. <laughs> it's a nice water uh, guy. Yeah, it's that yeah, guy from Wii U. Uh, yeah, Wii U. They are two Thanks, things Jeffrey. that can really immerse me or pull me out of a game. I'm curious if we'll ever see a DF Retro HT, H2O Part 3. Uh, I feel like in many ways, water graphics have been stagnant or even gone backwards. I think games... I think back to games like Golders, Boulder's Gate, Dark Alliance, and feel that we don't see that kind of water interactivity anymore. With all the new tech, why don't we see particle-based waterfalls, Alex? This is cool. By the way, Baldur's Gate, John, that re-released on PC just in December 17th. So it's, it's on GOG and Steam now. It's like 17 euros or something like 20 euros, uh, but it's it like supports graphics cards down to like like DX, DX8 era stuff. Uh, also, so it, we should try it out also as like a co-op and uh, it works. It's, I wanted to give it a try. But uh, here, uh, John could also really comment on this too. I do think there's been a crazy stagnation in water tech uh, for a lot of games, not all of them. I think some have done it uh, quite a bit better than others. I think a lot of Ubisoft, Ubisoft titles, um, I think back to, you know, the original Watchdogs, which implemented this really cool wavy undulating stuff. Uh, they've done it really well. I think Rockstar, uh, if you turn up the graphics really high and uh, Red Dead 2, you get really good looking water. But that's all for like flat plain water. The thing you're talking about here, Jeff, uh, like actual simulation of like a water moving service that can break apart and become its own surface, like it's based upon particles then. We've seen that so rarely. I can only think of like a handful of games last, like one game last gen that did it at all. And that was that Claybook game that you covered, John, right? That had yeah, some water yeah, sim the, in the it. the SDF stuff. Yeah, the SDF the water sim stuff. Yeah, that was so, awesome. That was awesome, but that's few and far between. Everything else is just a mesh that just, you know, like, undulates if it's hit. It doesn't actually displace in the way you think water should. Uh, when will we see that? Uh, I cannot tell you. I mean, I'm hoping this new uh, generation of 
GPUs with the excessive amounts of compute and different priorities for development, and maybe things like ray tracing, uh, which can also be used for particle simulation, uh, will push in this direction. I would really like to see that because I think water, like you're saying here, Jeff, has been super stagnant ha, 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 uh, for a while. And uh, yeah, I would love to see some changes there. What it is is that developers have primarily focused on one aspect of water, just the visual representation of bodies of water. And you know that includes things like reflections, refractions, and the way light sort of plays off everything. And you know, techniques now are pretty good at simulating that aspect of it. And I think there's, you know, in general, most games don't typically have you enter water as much, I feel. Actually, probably a lot less now than it used to be, weirdly enough. Um, so they don't necessarily worry about the interaction or the simulation aspect of it. And also, I think some of this might tie into the fact that games were essentially driven by last generation consoles for so long, like the PS4 era, where CPU power is sort of very limited. And I can see why they would choose to focus on the visual representation of like just sort of static water rendering rather than trying to simulate anything with it. Um, and I suspect it's a mix of those things that just sort of prevented them from really pushing it. And when you're building a system like that, I assume the engineers are like, okay, so we want to build this complex water sim. What are we doing with it? Like it kind of has to make sense within the game. I think for them to justify the the time and resources and rendering budget necessary to make it really work well. But I also think because we don't see it often, there's kind of this hole here where I would like to see some developers try to fill it with some interesting results. Cause I do think there's enough like resources now to do some cool stuff with water. And back in the day, actually, so Mentioning Dark Alliance is interesting. The PS2 era is actually really cool for water. There's a lot of very interactive water on PlayStation 2. And I think the reason is, is this was like old fixed function hardware. This was before pixel shaders were like a thing, really. I mean, on Xbox they were, uh, but PS2 didn't really have anything like that. So developers tended to lean more on simulating water through like geometric meshes and like making it interactive and ripple in interesting ways. Uh, because they couldn't lean on pixel shaders. Like at the time, you remember like Morrowind was like heralded as having this amazing water. Uh, and it looked visually nice, but in reality, it's a very choppy animation. It's a completely flat surface. The reflections don't line up. Like it's cool for when it came out. But I actually think like the interactive mesh water of like Bowder's Gate Dark Alliance actually holds up a lot better. It looks more visually interesting. Or that flood sequence in um, Metal Gear Solid 2. You know, there's a couple things. There's there's actually like pools of water that are interactive or that there's also that cutscene where the hallways are flooded and they use like thousands of little particles uh, to sort of give the impression of water rushing down a hall in 3D. Like stuff like that was really cool and experimental and I think they had to do it because they couldn't lean on pixel shaders. You also had that weird boom. Well, not weird. It was cool of like physics acceleration on PC where it's titles like... Oh um, yeah, physics. Yeah, physics. So you had titles like Cryostasis, Sleep of Reason. And oh, yeah. I love There's a couple game. other games. I want to say, I don't know, one of them was scored by Beer McCreary. It's like where you have a jetpack. What was the what? Dark Void or something like that? Dark Void. Yeah, that, that also had like a fluid particle sim in it too. That stuff I really do miss, actually. It, it's completely dead at this point. Mirror's Edge as well. It didn't have particle sim for water. Well, it did have some for like waterfall stuff, but it did a lot of cool cloth physics. 
that were way above the console versions. And it's just... I would love to see, see that, that stuff, stuff again. Would, but the question is, uh, will we see a DF Retro H2O Part 3? I don't know about H2O Part 3, but I have actually been thinking of doing another sort of episode kind of like that. You know, pick a visual effect and like explore the history of it. Maybe HTO Part Three could be more focused on like rain or something, rain and and yeah. <laughs> snow and things like that. Because there's know. always that classic example you used when you did uh, it was one of your first spoken videos, John, of Gears of War uh, remastered, where you have the original outdoor sequence with the lambent uh, whatever they are. I don't know. It's the dark level. It's kind of yep, really yep. Resident Evil Four like third stage versus the you know the the new game, which used a very different type of particle effect and it created a completely different mood. Those are really cool discussion points uh, for a video. Okay, let's move on to the next question. This is from uh, James the Naked Snake. Oh. <laughs> Naked Snake. <laughs> <laughs> I found myself very conflicted with the current state of gaming, mostly because of the AAA space. So I'm curious to hear what are your thoughts on the current state of predominantly AAA gaming? And what are your thoughts on the future of AAA gaming? Uh, well, Alex. What are your thoughts? I barely play AAA games uh, to completion. Uh, that's something that probably was very visible in my game of the year list. Uh, uh, and I think John's as well, too, and Audi's as well, too. Uh, very much so uh, there. Uh, but that doesn't mean there aren't good AAA games. I still think uh, some of the more dedicated experiences recently from Microsoft and uh, Sony are about single-player games. It's not all, all about like the Ubisoft, EA, Activision mentality of pushing MTX into constantly persistent online titles that never disappear, like the Destiny model. Uh, I think they're they're not always focused on that. So there are good things coming in that out of that direction. And we're we have title, you know, we have developers like ID, uh, um, Machine Games, uh, Bethesda Studio stuff, Arcane. You know, they make great single player dedicated experiences that are not about just washing everything with MTX and being a persistent online title. Uh, and I think those titles have been very successful. Uh, and I think those people in that space in the AAA space are going to be continuing to make that kind of stuff. But I do not see any positive outcomes uh, in, the, in the next feature for things like EA, Activision, uh, Ubisoft. I think they're going to keep pushing in the direction they're going in. Well, it's been interesting with Square Enix in particular that they went down the, uh, the games as a service route with Avengers and it kind of didn't do very well. And then we have Guardians of the Galaxy, which is very much single-player single, single player related, and certainly from the critical uh, reaction, was uh, much more positively met. So, yeah, interesting. I, I, I think you're right, Alex. The concept of the single-player experience isn't going away, and um, I think AAA should be pretty good this year, I think. I don't know what you reckon, John. Yeah, I, so I, t I tend to feel like companies that are associated with first parties, like the, the console creators especially, tend to do pretty well in the AAA space because they have other ways of making money and their focus is on creating something that really works for their base more than, more than just finding ways to milk the consumer, <laughs> it feels. Whereas a lot of these big publishers, like you said, like Activision, Ubisoft, EA, they really are leaning into this these predatory practices and like stuffing their games full of things that sort of, I think, compromise the experience. Um, like, and it's a shame because you look at something like Assassin's Creed and there's a lot of good stuff in there. 
you can tell a lot of talent worked on these games, but they've they they're trying to make this gigantic living thing that people just stay in, and they've done everything to slow down the pacing and experience to make it a grind. Like it feels more like a free to play game at this point than it does like its own thing. And I feel like that's a huge detriment to those experiences, but they're still obviously making a lot of money, which I guess is the whole point. Right. And that's, but they are losing me. That's for sure. Well, are they making money? That's the question. I Um, I gather they are. I mean, it's, but you're right. It's, it's hard. I I don't know their financials off the top of my head. (laughs) So let's move on. A question from Paul Kalamata here. Given that the PlayStation 5 is comparable to a relatively high-end PC and is much more capable than the minimum spec required to run popular desktop VR headsets uh, like the Valve Index or Vive Pro 2, is it possible that PSVR 2 could be the leading platform for the most cutting-edge VR experiences for the next few years, assuming that the floor for developers is higher than on PC for the foreseeable future? John. So I think... You know, arguing about how the PS5 compares to the PC, that's a separate thing. But I actually do think PC VR is in a weird space currently where uh, it feels like the standalone units like the Oculus Quest have become like the preferred method of delivery, unfortunately. And a lot of the big releases are just only going to that thing. Uh, And then on the PC space, when PC VR games do come along they tend to target lower spec machines as a baseline to ensure that the most people can play them uh, because VR does have those additional demands and performance drops in VR are pretty nasty. Um, and as so as a result, it does kind of feel like there's not many VR games that are really taking advantage of what we know the PC can do technically. So it does make the case that PSVR 2, you know, being designed around PlayStation 5 specifically should at least lead to experiences on par with the upper edge uh, PC experiences, right? Like at least like Half-Life Alex level in terms of technology and beyond, you know, which we don't see enough of that stuff on the PC these days. And it's not due to the hardware, it's just due to the market situation. So I do have some hope there because honestly, when you look at PSVR 1, it's pretty darn impressive what they were able to deliver on that, considering the the target platform and the extremely limited move controllers, which are terrible hand controllers for VR. So just getting a headset and hand controllers that are on par with the good stuff on the PC, I think is going to be such a huge thing. Uh, And then you combine that with targeting just the PS5 level hardware. I, I think people are, could be very impressed with this. And there's a lot of potential here to deliver something amazing. Uh, Final question from our friend Analog Foundry. Got a YouTube channel, check it out. Um, From listening to the DF crew talk about raid tracing, I gather that it is somewhat of an end game in terms of real-time lighting techniques. I wonder, is there anything that raid tracing fundamentally cannot do? The thing that comes to mind for me would be that ray tracing relies on the ray approximation of light, so it can't accurately simulate any effects that arise due to the wave nature of light. Diffraction gratings? Question mark. (laughs) If it turns out we need to have accurate grating simulation in games, I petition we call that wave tracing. Now that's an E3 tech demo name. (laughs) Uh, not sure if joking. I think this uh, is funny. Alex. I mean, yes, 
that is true. What uh, what you're saying there, uh, you won't get any of the wave particle physics uh, stuff. Uh, so what 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 does that mean? Uh, you know, like uh, it's the classic uh, uh, like uncertainty test thing where if you put like a grating in front of a, uh, a thing of light, if you look at it and observe the light going through, it'll go exactly through like you expect it to, going through like, uh, uh, what is it, like one of the holes in this grating. Mm -hmm. But if you actually don't look at it, the uncertainty principle makes it act like a waveform instead. And you'll actually see like this diffused look of light on the, the back grating of the, the thing that the light went through. I forget the name of the experiment. Audie, I'm going to send you a Wikipedia article and you put the name <laughs> of the experiment. Uh, but basically, Light as a wave versus light as a particle. That's what the the thing that he's talking about. So it won't capture that stuff, but that stuff's super rare, and humans rarely uh, see that on a macro form anyway. But the thing that ray tracing cannot do so well uh, because it is just so uh, expensive uh, is usually a lot of um, heavy refraction, heavy uh, like caustic light stuff. Uh, it, yeah, caustic. So if you uh, like. Uh, have like three rows of glass and have the light go through it each time. That's so expensive with ray tracing to do. And the result you may get re may require so many rays that it is completely not possible in real time, maybe not even possible on offline. So they use other techniques there, uh, like photon mapping, which is different. Um, and that gives them approximations of those uh, effects in a better manner. And I don't think it maps at all to hardware. Um, so there are some other aspects of lighting that are not so easy to do with ray tracing just because they're so, there's so many layers to them, uh, essentially. Yeah. I think the point here though, is that we're just at the beginning of real time ray tracing in terms of what's feasible and the path is long. Uh, there are many things that we, that we will see in the future, I think as hardware becomes more capable. So, uh, including more path tracing in general. Well, just one last thing to mention about this. There are like, for example, uh, the lighting and tracing and all these things for things that aren't solid media is also not very mappable to the current hardware in a good way. Uh, so that's one area we're gonna see like particles or part of any sort of volume in general being lit uh, is also gonna be something that's gonna take a long time to do really well with ray trace like techniques. This is expensive. Well, that's it. That's our final question, and that's our show. Uh, as usual, please do like, subscribe, share if you enjoyed it. Uh, we've actually got this as a podcast now, digitalfoundry.podbeam.com. Go there if you want an audio-only experience. Or just go to iTunes or Spotify or anything Oh, my like goodness. That. You'll yeah, find Google it right there. Podcasts. Yeah, your favorite podcast supplier will have DF Direct as a podcast. Um, and of course, DF Supporter Program. If you are enrolled there, you get to uh, access this show days ahead of everybody else. Uh, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching or indeed listening. I'm not going to say deprecated because it is still there, but I'm not sure that stuff like ray tracing features and whatnot are being added. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah. I've got a phone call here. Sorry. I'm Take thy time. Okay, Audie. You know what to do. Edit, 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 edit. edit. <laughs>